Okay, you may ask, why are we listening to Screamo from 2009? And I will tell you, you are not listening to Screamo from 2009. No, 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 you are not. Magical, adventurous Screamo updated in 2020. That's yep. You Can't Stop the Killer, which has been one of Emery's most prized, beloved tracks on I'm Only a Man. Maybe the heart and soul of that album uh, in a mystical, adventurous alternate reality story told by Devin, who maybe is a killer. Might be. But uh, we did it in 2020, and man, it sounds good. It feels good. It's part of I'm Only a Man update version. It's going real well. We're cranking through those, and they are at emorymusic.com. And you can find see the video of us playing that and everything. So that's what we've been up to. I know you've heard that, but now might be time for you to go pick up that vinyl. That track is is quite outstanding and generated a lot of positive comments. So thank you, everybody, who is saying now at this point, it's like, I didn't know at first, but now that I've heard these versions, I'm all in. Thank you. Quite validating. Um, yeah. So let me tell you what el- who else the show is brought to other than Emory, who the show's all- always brought to you by Emory, but also... ZipRecruiter. Hiring's challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple and smart, and that place is ZipRecruiter, where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash badchristian. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And also today's show, sponsored by Quip. Sponsored by the makers of my favorite electric toothbrush, Quip. Good habits are what matter most for your dental care, so go to getquip.com slash badchristian and get your first refill pack for free. Okay. All right. Toby, Toby, Toby. What's up? What's going on? I know you are in the middle of... It ain't of... good. It ain't good over here <laughs> on the side of the country. Life ain't good? No, I just... You got the 2020 pick... blues or what? Just trying Bumped to on the VP to... pick or is something, something else got you down? No, I... Uh, no, my God. <laughs> at, le- at least there's somebody that can say things clearly now on the Democratic Party. <laughs> like they can say full. Uh, I'm stealing that from. I was flipping through. I was watching last night on Fox News, and I switched to CNN and then MSNBC to hear the different takes mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. Kamala Harris, and it was just so funny. But one of the guys on Fox News said that, that at least somebody can finish their sentence now for the Democrats, and wow. I was like, that's that is kind of wild. I I don't know about Joe Biden's mentality and health, but we shall see. Maybe maybe I'm wrong about that. But, well, anyway. but the thing that we do know that is I, I mean, if I I take some contrarian delight in in the absurd the absurdity of the theater of everything, you oh, know, know, just to where it's it's starting to become clear to me from I always you know, it's like I always knew politicians are bad and you should never like them yeah. or support them. Like you, that that seems to have always been clear, but it's been hard to understand who these people are and why they do what they do. And the, the more and more the whole society gets used to criticizing institutions openly, it just yeah. gets so much easier. It's just getting so much easier to see that they they have a desire for celebrity and worship and power that comes from that. And they're not even the people who are the most influential. They're just the stooges for influential people. Right. And institutions. So I feel a little bit better knowing that that's becoming clearer and clearer to the average person, regardless of. And that's true all the way from parties down to PR representatives for companies or whatever. It's it's the most joke year. I thought 2016 was a joke. We had Hillary and and Trump. I was like, okay, once we get to 2020, something has to happen. And then, no, (laughs) it, it, it like the. Satan doubled down or, or something. I mean, it's just unbelievable. The you're right. It really is just like a comical 
uh, theater, uh, circus. I mean, it really, it just is. Everything's so crazy that everybody can be crazy. But speaking of, right now I'm just in the middle of this move, and I'm trying to see my family, and, and family makes things difficult. And they're already mad at me because we're moving away. But I was like, I mean, don't you understand? We have to. And I have a family and, and my wife's career and all that stuff. Well, you and had then, to explain to your parents that you have a family. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 100%. They like, seem the thing, to Mom, constantly forget. I have a family. I mean, I mean, I was. my dad came and visited uh, last week or whatever. And he just wants to go. He's like telling me about all the restaurants that he wants to go to. And I was like, Dad. I said, here in North Carolina, I don't even know if a lot of the restaurants are open, but we might would have to sit outside. It's like 90-something degrees, and we just want to see you. What? Let's just order something, or we'll fix something, and let's just sit at our house and enjoy each other's company. That shocks him. He can't – wait. just that, that that must be petrifying, like, to have to feel like he has to talk and sit with us for a bit. Like, it may, if there's other stuff going on, maybe it feels more comfortable. I don't know if it's just – him getting older, but he just can't understand it. And I was like, Dad, I have to travel like 700 miles. I can't risk right now going to some restaurant to get COVID. I'm not really afraid of dying, but Jess is going to be leaving before us. And what if I'm sick and I have all three kids and we have to get to sh- uh, Champagne? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just like he can't possibly fathom it. He's just been a bachelor, you know, for 20 or 30 years now and since him and my mm-hmm. mom split up, basically. And yeah. and they're just being difficult. And then uh, on top of that, uh you know, just the move and everything. And then uh, it was funny because Jess's insurance ran out for this week, but it starts up next week again at her new job, right? So we have one week we just have to live through without insurance. And I swear I felt like the the worst I've ever felt. My my elbow is swollen. You probably can't even mm-hmm. see it. It, it. I mean, it, like the weirdest stuff is happening. I felt like I just, and, you know, and everybody's counting on me. And it's probably mental, all mental. But it feels Likely. like... It feels like I hadn't thought about my insurance. I haven't been to the doctor once in a since we moved to Charlotte. I haven't been to. I went to the get eye, eyeglasses, but uh, and now as soon as I found out, Jess goes, "Well, I, I said I'm not feeling that great," but she was like, "Well, if you have to go, you better go tonight because our insurance ends at midnight." Since <laughs> since she said that, I've been Cue fighting. All I've been fighting for my life. <laughs> Every symptom. I've had COVID three or four times. I mean, it's unbelievable. I might have bursitis in my L. I don't, I mean, you couldn't be worse off. And I know for a fact, as soon as that insurance kicks in Monday morning, I'll be fine. What the hell is bursitis? Is that that old man made up? Disease. It probably is, but what? it, I, is make, it? it makes me feel a little better if I have that than something else. So it's like arthritis. I never, I mean, used to hear about it constantly. Right. I never hear about it anymore. Is it just because I'm not around old people? I guess so. I mean, I old mean, people have all kinds of stuff. I mean, they they just they say a lot of stuff, but they keep on living. They keep getting older and older and older. Well, I mean, now I, I mean, I used to hear about arthritis and bursitis and all these old men yeah. sounding things or grandma kinds of things, but now all I hear is like all the. The, the un, unexplainable pain diseases and Lyme disease and, the, oh, you know, yeah. all the things that, you know, they're kind right. of a little more vague than one would want you to believe. But I they know. explain all of those things have in common that they explain unexplainable pain, right. which I find interesting, but I know to leave it there. I, I mean, there's never been more unexplainable pain explained <laughs> than the it, time we live in. Right, like I mean, right. just, that's you, what I'm there, saying. There, There's you a will lot of find an answer explained with a lot of labels, right? And I know to leave it be. Yeah. Oh, but many yes. p- types leave of pain that were labeled as certain things, they I no longer hear about. 
Yeah. Well, you know where we live right now? This is really funny. We live in a time where you you can go about two questions in on anything and you better stop. Better if it's stop, politics, yeah. if it's I'm getting sports, way better at that. If it's your neighbors and if it's physical and mental health, you ask two questions and go, Oh, huh. That's really interesting. And you change the subject or you mm-hmm. will be in trouble. Mm-hmm. Someone is Absolutely. going to lose it. They won't be able to explain. No one knows what the hell they're doing anyway. They, no one yeah. knows what the hell. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I don't right. know. That's no. what I wish I would just, I don't think I might just start using that. When somebody asks me I don't me know either, which is what tends to make me ask questions. But I've learned not to do so. Yeah. It's better for everybody to collectively not, not know ask many questions things. and learn more about people. It's, no. the, it's the most horrific thing you could do to them. No. You couldn't yeah. be more cruel than asking them three Don't questions. Do it. <laughs> Why would you do that? Two is fine. Leave if the them second alone. one is very easy to get out of. My God. You can do two questions with anybody, but the second one has to leave them a solid out that you have right. to respect. Yes. That's what I've adopted yep. as a new rule yep. when speaking with anyone. I know. Including people in my household. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I don't know why it took me so long to figure it out. Either, I know. But I was a fool. I'm getting there. I was a fool. I should have just <laughs> asked. You, you asked the first question to seem interested. The second, uh, the first question. You could question, be genuinely interested. Yeah, the, the, but the you better stop is to being be genuinely after interested. the answer. Yeah. Second question is just to know, to them to know that you actually care, but, and then you move on and everybody feels good. Yeah. Leave them wanting more. And you just change yeah. the subject to something. And, you know, I mean, it, <laughs> what you know I, I mean anything you don't don't ask anybody what they put in the recipe i don't, don't even think you should do that i don't they think fix so your dinner, you go what is this oh oh wow this is amazing did you or did you go to the store the local store here to get it or the fresh market or, yeah, yeah oh, okay we're really cool how about this weather you just change the subject right you just because you right may on. discover that they didn't work as hard on it as they wished that they thought they might should have to impress you the correct amount <laughs> or something and then you will have these tortillas are so good i can't believe you made mind. them i didn't make it but you were just curious if it had cumin in it and how much <laughs> but just, if you get you may reveal something that was never intended to be revealed about the preparation of the meal of, right. for instance it, it, we were foolish because we thought we were asking people <laughs> questions to learn and that is not Correct. what anybody <laughs> wants you to do about them not good for you them do not or want you. to learn about anybody they do not no. want you to learn about them that is the meanest most horrific it can thing be you can it do. can be a horrifically mean thing to do is be curious uh some of the family stuff though is I'm thinking of it like this. Like you said, your dad's a bachelor and has been for a long time. Yeah. Wouldn't it make sense to look at all that as through the frame of something like arrested development for the parents? Is there an arrested development? Is there a term for that in psychology or family psychology of where if you get divorced and live by yourself, you eventually, I mean, it's the same as other forms of arrested development. You, you, you don't continue to, to develop. Like in the ways that you're saying with your dad, like he no doesn't even have the skills of hang out, do right. this, come to my house anymore. He they've atrophied yeah. in some degree, yes, or 100%. just frozen permanently at, in time based on his age. Right. As people get older and older, they just it, well, at least at what I've experienced, both my my parents divorced when I was like 18 years old, and so now they're both single, and they have zero clue of how not to be totally self consumed. <laughs> 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 there is no chance. That they can think, my son, I will help. So what my dad does, my dad tries and he will, this is the worst. I, oh gosh, my dad, if he ever hears this, he's going to be mad. My dad will come to our house and he can't, he hugs the whole family. And then 
he has to do this uncomfortable. I can see his teeth start gritting. He does this side hug to me. And then no matter what, before he leaves, he'll go to Jess and hand her a little bit of money. <laughs> never will do it once handed it to me. He would never, he couldn't possibly, but it's just this thing where he goes, I know my son, he does have a family and this money will help him. And this is about as good as I can do. And he does that. And I, I, I do appreciate it. And I understand he can't go there with me, but it's like the interaction is so weird because my dad and I never hugged in our life is uh, ever. I think I told my dad I loved him one time after I had this horrible dream where he died. And I was like, if I don't tell him, he's going to die today. I know I, I had this dream. I, I was like, I was a freshman in high school. And that night I had this dream where my dad was literally just torn apart by wild dogs. And I was like, I was so, it was so awful. And I told him that, and I waited to get out of the car. He said, like, Hey, I got to get to work. Get on out of the car. And I did that. I was waiting around because I was like, I got to tell him. I was like, I love you, dad. And I just got out and that was it. I don't think I've ever told him again since then. I don't even know. And that's I mean, wild. I'm, I'm sad. Sure he told that's me actually sad. I'm laughing about it because it is easier for me to laugh right. because it is sad. But I say give them slack and give the, the families a little bit of credit because it wasn't long ago where he was in your position and felt right. like he had old people and young people bothering him and had no clue what to do. And now you've stepped into that 40 year old thing where the uh, everybody around you seems like children, both younger and older, when you have the t- total maximum responsibility that a human can handle is the space that you're in right now so you know that's the way it goes i imagine they felt the same way when they were your age and you'll be as pathetic as them when you're their age well that's what i was getting ready to say i was uh our guest today doug gerald mack has i say that your last name right doug okay good oh we don't hear you yet i don't do we have your audio doug yeah he's muted there you go but you hear us okay doug yeah i can hear everything I was well, just great. thinking. I was thinking the same thing because uh, I, I stumbled upon you. I watched your uh, your discussion about pebbles, and I was just thinking about my dad and old people. You just see them get older and chipped away, and, <laughs> and you know, I don't know. They might get more wrinkly. I don't know if they get more smooth and rounded. They probably get more jagged. Which some you said some, some pebbles do get more jagged, right? They get more flattened and they keep some of their edges. But I think that's what it is. But Doug, we're really happy to have you here today. Uh, I'll, I'll introduce you a little bit. You are a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. That's right. Yep. And, that's and right. Done a lot of work and uh, love sediment, apparently, and, and rocks and stones. And when uh, I reached out to you, you were like, why would you want me to be on this podcast? And I, I guess the real reason why is because that the, the talk that you did on Pebbles led me to several other things that you have done, but I was just fascinated by it because... One of the things about our podcast, Back Christian, we really do think the importance of stuff is that you value it, that it doesn't necessarily in, intrinsically, that you, that you value it, you value the work of it, and the small things really matter sometimes. Like that, That's what it just stood out to me, how many times I've walked past stones and pebbles, and there might be a cool one, I might throw one here, it comes in handy in a couple of circumstances, but they are everywhere. Like you even mentioned that in like being in driveways, and we... We actually recognize and know and have a relationship in some way with something so simple as a pebble, but it actually really is can tell us a lot about the world. So that's why more so I wanted you to be on here today. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, I, I have a lot of people asking about um, some of our recent work with this, but they're all like science journalists and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so it's definitely a curious, um, I was definitely curious about your angle on this stuff. Well, curiosity is the word, to be honest. Uh, you know, I have somewhat of a science uh, curiosity in a general way uh, and, and somewhat scientific-minded in, in the same way and tend to get a lot of narrow focuses. Sometimes they're of something of a technical or mechanical nature. 
uh, our community actually has a lot of people that are, that are probably slightly wired differently or into nerdy things. And I believe it's, you know, Richard Feynman said almost anything is interesting if you look into it deeply enough. So we're quite driven by curiosity and intrinsic value of, of things. So, but, so when somebody just to model that, as I think is a fascinating and important way to think and the way I wish everybody would approach everything that they care about, especially in a time of, I think we're at a massive crisis of meaninglessness. Yet, if you look deeply into sediment, you'll find plenty of meaning and value and importance that connects in so many ways to so many other things. But is it correct that you love pebbles and sediment so much so that your email address is about it has the word sediment in it? Yeah, that's my handle. Um, <laughs> I I actually had to fight the university administration to get that. <laughs> I had an IT guy tell me when I requested that handle that it would be unprofessional <laughs> and I should have one based on my name. And um, then he condescended and told me when I was an assistant professor that I would have to talk to deans and everyone else. If I had this email sediment, I wouldn't be taken seriously. And that was my in. And I said, I intend to dedicate my life to promoting the good name of sediment. Doctor, <laughs> it's sediment. And it will benefit my career to have this name. So um, I've kind of been trying to own it ever since. Well, let's try to do some technical things and attach this mentality and mindset, which I suppose is it clarifying sure. to say that we're more interested in the mindset than yeah. all the particulars. Although I think we could detour into the particulars. And I, I think I would stay right there with you. So if yeah. we want I have to do a few that, questions, we can, we can get to those later, though. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about your development of the mindset or how you found this calling, if, if you will. Sure. Um, so I did a bachelor's degree in environmental engineering with an idea that I was going to kind of go out and save the planet. Um, but I was technically minded and I wasn't really, so I didn't, wasn't really that interested in doing like justice or policy or politics, I was good in math and physics and chemistry. And so I decided to go pursue a um, a degree in environmental engineering. Um, And, you know, a great thing about my college program was they had all these co-ops where you got to go like try three different jobs for six months each and all that. And I tried, it was great. And I tried three different jobs for six months when I was an undergrad placed in three different places as an environmental engineer. And I hated all of them. And, um, (laughs) I realized in the end, I was kind of staring down the barrel of graduating. And I was like, well, I've had an immersive experience in being a practical engineer and none of it fit. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's not anything, it's no disrespect about being an engineer. It's about how I'm wired, yeah. where I sort of had some people find what they love. Other people react against what they don't love until they mm-hmm. find that thing that clicks. And um, I started working in a professor's lab as an undergrad. And she, um, it's one of those things you get a mentor, right? She basically sat me down in her office, almost slapped me in the face and was like, you're really good at doing experiments. You're really good at thinking deeply. You're really good at thinking abstractly. And you're really bad at, and she mentioned a bunch of other things I was really bad at. Like you're a bad engineer. You're bad at problem solving. You prefer when you're working on questions someone else has asked, you're not interested at all. And I find that you're only interested when it's a question that you asked. (laughs) It clicked with me. I was like 21 years old and I realized I hate puzzles. I hate like, you know, I, like I hate, I hate puzzles. I hate quizzes. I hate everything. And I realized it's kind of a 
attitude I have. I just don't like answering other people's questions. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> I it's like too posing my own questions. What um, What do you attribute that to? I mean, I, I'm very. I think that that explain. I mean, I think there are many uh, neurodivergent wirings that cross into that territory, basically, and it's very common. And those, I think, those types of kids and individuals are so misunderstood. Um, and a lot of times get labeled as lazy because they don't like the questions that other people are asking, for instance. Yeah. Was that your experience in school or th things like that? It, well, you know, it was interesting because I had that feeling, but I'm stubborn. So, like, I could have gone that way. I think my older brother, so I think it's a family trait. Mm -hmm. I think my dad is certainly that way. My brothers are that way. My older brother was that, is that way to a fault where, you know, he was perceived, he's a brilliant he never wanted to answer anybody else's questions or even do anything that was anyone else's suggestion. So he's kind of that way immersively in all aspects of his life. And he was considered like, you know, lazy or antisocial and like ADHD and whatever else you want to label it as. Yeah. And he had a really hard time in school. Um, for some reason, I had that thing that I didn't like answering anyone else's questions, but I was also really stubborn where I like, just believe that if I, even if I had to do something that I was going to do it really well. Yeah. So I was this kid that went to college for engineering and hated it and got all A's. Yeah. I hated it. Yeah. And I, and it wasn't easy. I worked my butt off at something I hated. Cause I just <laughs> thought I started this, I got to finish it. And so I, yeah, I think it's just a family trait. I mean, and which, whether that's genetic, whether it was learned from mm. my parents, I don't know, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> Well, uh, so when you when you talk about it in those terms, is it? Uh, it sounds like even maybe that advisor had a good role in helping you direct. But is is self determination fu the fundamental thing that once you arrive at it, self determination of what the questions are and what the goals are? Is that resonate with? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's where I am. I think that's where I am now, and where I find satisfaction. But I didn't know I didn't know to put a name like that on it at mm -hmm. 21 years old. Um, right. And in a sense, right, it's funny that, I mean, this undergraduate advisor said, you're, you're going to do a PhD in science. Mm -hmm. That's what you need to do. You're a scientist and you don't know it. And at the time, it seemed like the opposite of self-determination. Like I was being pressured by this person uh -huh. in my life. I'm like, what are you talking about? Why do you have this vision for me? And um it took me a while to come around to it. And like, I applied, you know, I, and I, I remember coming to her and saying like, yeah, but what I want to do, people can't do PhDs. And she was like, what do you want to do? I was like, I like rivers. And she, just, <laughs> and she, said, she was like, you can do a PhD in anything. How ignorant are you? Like, you know, <laughs> like there's people that do a PhD in literally anything. And so, um, I think that, right. And so it's a good point is that now, like, you know, you were talking about that 40 year old landmark and all this, like I can sit here as a 40, 40 plus year old person and recognize that what I value and maybe the choices I made were about self-determination, but all of us need like mentors and not just mentors like, oh, you're doing good. I mean, sometimes somebody that like says like, you're on autopilot right now and I'm going to like forcibly whack you off course and see if you've got the strength to turn against me and then find your own course. And oh, I um, like that. That's happened a few times in my life where people basically needed to like, I needed to resist something pushing me in order to like realize that there's somewhere I wanted to go. I was like, mm -hmm. I don't want to do what you're doing, but then it made me make another choice. And so 
I think self-determination is a good way to put it, but I think it's like a long path for me to realize that. Yeah, yeah. It, it often is in a largely prescriptive world, you know, conformist mm. type of uh, situation we find ourselves in typically. Um, well, so sediment itself, you know, I listened to a talk, the talk you did on it, and the whole setup of the talk is how unimportant it is, and there's no money in it, and there's no even funding <laughs> for it because it's not important to anybody and then you you speak and say it's but it's it's so worth doing for its own uh merits and it seems like what comes out of that is all of it all of that type of thinking uh is deep and then has uh connections to other things all the way to climate and climate Mm. change and and it seems like that type of thinking winds up affecting society and policy and all those other things but it requires the deep people to do it um and i want to talk about sediment but Yep. One more thing about science and epistemology and philosophy of science is, do you think most scientific discoveries that have ever happened have been more along those lines? Okay, sorry, I got to interrupt before we go any farther because I'm getting a word. I'm getting a word that some listener out there, somebody out there is an employer. You're an employer and you've got a lot on your plate. I see, I can, I'm just getting the word. You're running your business, you're ensuring workplace safety and all the other things that you have to be concerned with. And the word I'm getting is that you need to leave your hiring to the one place that makes finding qualified candidates fast and easy. And of course, it's ziprecruiter.com slash bad Christian. ZipRecruiter will send your job to over 100 of the web's leading job sites, but they won't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and actively invites them to apply to your job. Now, I think this part is even more cool. They make the hiring process efficient and effective with all their features they do to filter candidates and put it all into a dashboard. So not only do they do this work, they consolidate the data and its visualization in a way that will help you impulsively know without having to do so much deep diving into all the resumes and all that kind of thing. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. So we're talking about like later tomorrow or the next day, you're going to have people for your job. And right now, to try ZipRecruiter for free, our listeners can go to ZipRecruiter.com slash badchristian. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-A-D-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N, ZipRecruiter.com slash BadChristian. ZipRecruiter, it is the smartest way to hire. Whew, sometimes you just get a word, but there it was. Anyway, what were we saying? So, you, yeah, you were asking about, you know, whether or not I thought that most scientific discoveries kind of happen out of pure curiosity without any, um, you know, what, without any desire for an application. And so I don't want to, um, while I value that way of thinking and that's how I go about things, the, the thing about um, knowledge discovery through science is that it happens on all ends of the spectrum from, from basic to applied. So while I like to ask a question, a fundamental question without regard to whether it's important in an applications or social sense, and then there are discoveries that come from that that can go in unexpected directions, including ultimately having some importance. There's also really great discoveries that come from a very applied problem, you know, and, and in other words, that you need to solve a technical mm-hmm. challenge. We need to 
um, come up with an instrument or a device or a solution for a problem. And actually that there, we find a gap in the fundamental science that is a limitation for us developing some technology. And so while I work from the basic, the basic questions forward, it's also just as common for scientific discoveries to start from a practical need in engineering challenge with a technical hurdle that's insurmountable with our current state of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And then you have to like work backwards to discovery. So my science has taken me into many directions, including with engineering applications and also with people like in society and art that are interested in some of what we've done. But I've also seen it go the other way where from artists and engineers that need to solve a particular problem or have some particular interest that it works backwards to lead to scientific discovery. So, mm-hmm. I But think- even in the, in the long-term history, if you go Aristotle, Plato, Newton, how do you think of them in the tradition? Like what was their fundamental drive? Yeah, so – you know, that's, that's an interesting question. It's kind of a, it's a different question in the sense of, so I think of, I think, you know, a lot of the ancient Greek philosophers, and of course, Plato is relevant for some of our recent work on, mm-hmm. um, on how rocks are made and break up. But, yeah, that's, um, that's it. I'd like to hear about that. Yeah. If you can. Yeah. Um, but you know, those people were pre-science, that was pre-science, right? Mm-hmm. And so of course, humans, you know, before science, philosophy, there was philosophy, and philosophy goes much longer back than science does. And I certainly think that there's a long tradition of um, people asking questions of a fundamental nature for their own sake. Um, on the other hand, you know, at the same time, way back, there are people like Archimedes, who was fundamentally concerned with how to move water and lift it up distances so we could put it into, you know, um, put it into canals and aqueducts and move them about places. And so I think that um, there, I, you know, I'm, I'm no expert in the ancient, you know, I'm no expert in the ancient philosophers, you know, that's kind of a, I'm in a lot of ways, I'm like a pointy headed academic scientist where I'm interested in science and when it overlaps with some aspects of philosophy or history, I learn a little bit, but I'm kind of already overtaxed and trying to learn about all the science that I want to. So I can't claim to be any expert, but, For sure, there were people, you know, those ancient philosophers and the sort of things that led to natural philosophy, which ultimately led led to science, were wrestling with some of the deepest questions about the origin of the universe and the structure of nature and all of these things. Um, But they were, um, um, I think that, I think that perhaps one could argue that, um, you know, the the advent of modern science and coinciding with the industrial revolution kind of led to a split where um, science became more rigorous and more specialized and applied science became a major motivator for basic science. And, you know, which, which leads us now to the present day where science and engineering have a healthy feedback with each other. Most of the time, we're not considering some of the weighty issues that arise from philosophy and philosophical considerations. And occasionally when that happens, like with our, um, you know, the, the Plato's cube work that we worked on, it's kind of vexing and challenging. And as a scientist, we don't know what to do with it. You know? And so mm-hmm. those separations are um, useful, I guess, these days, because science has rules. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's rules you have to follow. And if you don't, no matter how good your idea is, it can be just another person philosophizing if you don't do it, right? So you had a 
you had a Feynman quote earlier and another Feynman quote is um, science is the business of not fooling ourselves and not fooling other people. Right. And so basically you try to prove yourself wrong and you try to prove other people wrong all the time. And it's only the things that, um, that can withstand that scrutiny. And so I think in that sense, modern science, modern science and its separation from philosophy happened as we evolved into this, you know, Feynman-esque type. We, it's the business of, you know, if we're going to rely on science, especially for technological development, it can't just be our idea about how things work. It has mm-hmm. to be falsifiable. Yeah, but it may re- have to re I mean, it feels to me that we've gotten real hyper-specialized, same as crop. You know, you do one crop in one field, and that leads to eventual, eventually leads to problems. When we have to, it seems like the moral sphere and the ethics sphere is going to have to come back in as we progress through technology. So I find the whole thing a loop. I think I hear more about Plato and yeah. these guys now than I than I used to. Which well, Doug, I think well, Doug is, are you also kind of are you also saying like uh, that it, science is working together with engineering, some, something like Tesla or something like that, where science is coming together and it actually might potentially help the earth. Maybe it wouldn't be as, you know, as bad on, as pollution and stuff like that. So science, but the bottom line is let's sell a bunch of cars. Is, is uh, that kind of what you're saying? Like it, it, it ends up not being as much philosophical as we got a bottom line here, but it also might end up helping the world. That's right. Um, and I do, I do think that there's more, right. If, if science is probably more connected to engineering and its applications, which ultimately is connected to selling things or fixing things, than it is to philosophy, but I do need to bring bring up though because you're making me think. I mean, some of the most philosophical people in science and engineering are actually the theoretical physicists that work on trying to understand the origin of the universe and yeah. whether there are cyclical universes or considering the fundamental quantum nature of um, you know of matter. And the famous like Einstein quote that God does not play dice where he refused to believe that fundamentally like the fundamental nature of matter was probabilistic, that you could never know everything about the state of matter at the fundamental scale. And so actually, the deeper you go into theoretical areas, especially theoretical physics, the more the line between philosophy and science gets blurred, because often like these things that that physics, theoretical physics has to say, and I'm not an expert, but for example, like what we have to say about the origin of the universe in the end is ultimately that we have these mathematical equations that respect what we know about physics and nature. But then these mathematical equations make predictions and the predictions don't necessarily make sense to us physically, but they fall out of the math. And that kind of leads you to a question of like, well, is it physically possible or not possible? And what does it mean if math that we don't even understand, but we can algebraically, algebraically manipulate and solve says something that produces this like cognitive dissonance. We're like, I don't understand that the human brain can't comprehend that, but that's what the math says, you know? Yeah. And that actually brings you back to really deep philosophical questions. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. It seems that the theoretical physics and stuff is like the big prize. Like it's like the, the most, uh, Whoever whoever has the the biggest balls can go and figure out the newest the thing that could never be known before. Like there's completely outside of the realm of practicality. It's just can I have a new thought? Yeah. Can I can I discover something that's never been discovered? Can I think something nobody's ever thought before? Like that's the grand prize or something. I think that I think that's really fair. And just going on the thing that um you know science as a culture is not a monolith. 
you know, we have, uh, we have classes and prestige and jealousy like everyone else does. And I think that theoretical physics is where the prestige, you know, like so a lot of ego the pres- there. That's the, that's the prestige science, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, if I, t- if I tell somebody I'm a geoscientist or a geophysicist or whatever, you know, depends on where you are. But if you, you know, you're, since I know other scientists, when someone says, Oh, what do you do? They're like, I'm a theoretical physicist and the lay person will just be, Whoa, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. always, um, well, yeah. that's also true within science. We all sort of feel like we can't do what they do, you know, like, <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. You because know, it gets at that mystical side break. at some point. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm just working on rocks breaking over here. You know, I can't do, I can't do what they do. Well, tell us about what that has to do with Plato and the cubes and all that. Yeah. I mean, so this, um, we had a paper published recently that's been um, getting a lot of press, which is not the most common thing for my kind of work, right? But it happens sometimes. I mean, occasionally we write something on Mars and like, if it happens to be published in the same week that the movie, The Martian came out as it did, then the media picks it up because they're looking for a story about Mars. But um, in this case, um, I have, so I, I have a Hungarian mathematician colleague, Gabor Demokos, who I consider a wizard. Okay, like, you know, and by a wizard, I mean, he's a person who seems to appear on my doorstep almost without any advance notice, even though he lives in Hungary. And he appears to conjure up brilliant ideas and mathematical geometric concepts from thin air because he's a mathematician, uh, like a like a fundamental mathematician. And um, he kind of comes up with these beautiful and elegant applications of pure geometry to nature in a way that challenges me because it's almost like it bypasses physics. So I tend to think in a traditional physics way that like mathematics is the language of physics. And so I use math, but I use it in the way that like equations describe real quantities like heat and mass and momentum and things like that. Right. And so, but he's a mathematician that tries to take geometry and connect it directly to the natural world. And sometimes he has these startlingly, accurate um predictions about the natural world from pure geometry that have no physics in them and it leaves me like completely you know perplexed and so he came to me um so for a long time we've been working on as you mentioned um um toby and matt i think you both mentioned we've been working on how pebbles get round which right you know as you as you said i argue is not important um but of course, it's not important because I work on it for its own sake. But the fact that this is where sand on the beach comes from and dust rising up from the Sahara comes from and, um, you know, that we find these pebbles on other planets and then we want to understand what it says about the environment. There's some importance eventually. Um, yeah. But in this problem of working on how pebbles get round, of course, they have to, that means they have to start out not round. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we were working all this way in which pebbles got round as they banged together and moved down streams and beaches. And we found this beautiful theory that described it and it worked. We collected field data and all worked, but then we were left with this thing that, well, there's an anti-rounding thing that happens. So if pebbles get round as they bang together, there, that happens except not always. Where do I get the really, like when you look at a paved, you'll get a driveway, a gravel driveway paved with limestone fragments and you see, angular bits right and so clearly i if i take a rock and i crush it hard enough it doesn't round it breaks apart it's like a dish 
drop them on the floor and shattering. And so we had this inclination from the work we were doing that rocks, like pebbles are born as fragments. So, you know, what you see when you look at a mountain is a solid chunk of rock. And in order for that thing to become a pebble, it needs to shatter somehow into little bits. And then those little bits get rounded. And we realized that the little bits that are made from shattering, it seemed like they were pretty similar. And so um, Gabor was busily measuring thousands and thousands of pebbles, like the shapes of thousands and thousands of pebbles that he would find. You just go to a rock outcrop, a sheer face of rock where there's fragments at the bottom and pick them up. And he's a geometer. So he thinks of these things in terms of ideal form. So polyhedra. And if that's too, and polygons, if that's too technical, I mean, you know, if you think of a, a cube or a pyramid or something like that, you can count the number of faces that it has. Like a cube has six faces. It has eight corners or vertices and it has 12 edges, right? So with a polygon like that, you can count the number of faces, edges, and vertices. And if you're a geometer, you love nothing more than counting. They like integers. He doesn't like these messy decimals. He likes integers. He likes things you can count. So he was busily counting the number of faces, edges, and vertices of all of these fragments. And he plotted them all up and he said, you know, every one of these fragments looks like some random haphazard angular object. But if I take the average of thousands of them, it has exactly the numbers that a cube has. And that was kind of curious. <laughs> that the average pebble is a cube. Right. In, in shape. The average, so the average pebble when it begins its life, meaning when it's a fragment, before it's mm -hmm. rounded. Once it's okay. gotten nice and round like a river rock, forget right. it. Yeah. But like you go, to the, the, you go to a cliff where they're falling out and you see mm -hmm. these very angular bits or you take a sledgehammer to a sidewalk and you smash it and you pick up those pieces, right? He said the average number of edges and faces and corners of these things is exactly what a cube has. But none of these things are cubes. And then he said, Doug, another curious thing. He said, I just built a geometric model where I just take a block just imagine you take a random block in a computer. So make it a cube or a sphere. It doesn't really matter. But start slicing it in half with a knife at random orientation. So take a knife, slice any part randomly, then slice the knife again randomly and keep doing it and chop this thing up. And he said, if you, the fragments are the bits that are left between all the slices. And he said, and if I do that, I end up with exactly the same average and exactly the same variation around the average in my geometry model that I see in these real fragments. Do you think this is interesting? And I'm like, <laughs> this is mind blowing. Like, and you know, the first thing that I brought to it was how, why does nature do that? In other words, his geometric model was so simple. I could describe it to you in words. You just take a three-dimensional object of arbitrary shape and just start slicing it in two. You know, just keep slicing yeah, it, mm -hmm. just keep slicing it, just keep doing it. And then look at the pieces that are left over between the slices. And he's, and it described these natural fragments perfectly. And so I got really interested in um, why nature allowed that to happen, which led us on this journey of working on some of the physics and everything else. Now, where it's connected to, to Plato, this is the part that's really, really fascinating. And I admit to not being an expert in Plato and we had to read up on this, but both of us understood that. So Plato, you know, pre-science, Greek philosopher, but trying to understand the structure of 
the universe, right? Said there are five elements, right? There's earth, wind, water, fire, and then the ether, which is a, the kind of bucket to catch everything that we don't understand, right? Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is that um, Plato also understood that there were five perfect polygons that we, we now call the platonic solids, which are three-dimensional polygons where all the sides are equal length. So there's the cube, there's the tetrahedron, there's like a dodecahedron, which is like 10 sides, right? But these are the, these are the three-dimensional polygons where all sides are equal length, right? And so there were these five ideal polygons that he knew about, and there were these five elements that he speculated that all of the universe was made of, and he mm-hmm. said it's too much to be a coincidence. And so yes. also believing that nature must be perfect and sublime, this is why he chose, said that each of these elements will be made up of perfect shapes, indivisible atoms. And in his mind, these indivisible atoms were one of these perfect polygons. Can I try to say that back and make sure we're looking at this right from yeah. Plato? So f- first of all, how, how long ago was Plato? It's like 2,500 years ago, roughly. Okay. Yeah. And so in a pre-science way, he was, he was saying that na- he understood nature must be perfect or God made or whatever. Like it's a perfect thing. Uh, fundamentally, he was looking for perfect forms. Yes. Found the geometry of that. And then he also noticed that rocks are together, water's together, air is together. These yeah. things all group naturally together for some obvious reason and something along the lines of they wanted to be with their own kind or something like that. Yes, and and even more directly, it was an early it was an early version of the of atomistic thinking, meaning think right. about like the atom. That yeah, and he was thinking because of that, there's b- below what we can even see, they must be made of component parts. So exactly. he was actually, from that method of thinking, like these like things grouped together for these reasons, he wasn't thinking about gravity or the other stuff right. so much, but just that he, he was able to get to the concept of building blocks exactly. in an atomic sense. Precisely. And of course, he couldn't, um, he couldn't see these things. Um, hold on. What's up, Inez? Take your time. I don't, I don't know when I'm going to be done. Uh, you know, 20 minutes. 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. 20 minutes. There you go, Ines. <laughs> don't be too grumpy. Uh, I'll tell you all about it when I'm done. Um, but that's right. And so these, um, these, the, so it was, an, it was an idea about the atom. And so the thing was, is he understood that there were these indivisible, indivisible constituent particles behind all the elements, but he knew that they, we couldn't see them. He imagined they were too small, right? So the thing is, is that these days we draw, yes, we, we credit him as being a person who thought early on about like the concept of what we now consider to be the atom, but because it's pre-science, it's still not really in direct lineage to scientific thinking today. And so it might even be a little bit hokey in today's terms, but there was one thing he got right. So what, when we were thinking about, we were thinking about this cube made out of rock. And when Plato talked about earth, Plato was really talking about rock. Okay. So he understood actually that like earth is mostly made of rock. And so when we talk about earth in those days, earth meant rock. And to earth, he ascribed the cube. And he ascribed the cube for the reason being that of the five perfect polygons that he considered, the cubes could fit together and leave no space. Mm-hmm. So the thing is, is that earth was a solid and all the other elements that he considered were not solids. 
And he said, those other things, they can have gaps and holes in them, but a solid can't have gaps or holes in it, or it wouldn't be structurally sound. And so it must be made of cubes because cubes can stack and fill all space with no gaps. And so the reason why, first of all, so point number one about why we thought that this was so profound was that what we found was that earth or rock is actually made of cubes, but only in a statistical averaged sense. So, (laughs) which brings us to the second important part of Plato. So Plato understood that when he looked out into nature, so he was deeply into geometry, but when he looked out into nature, none of his perfect triangles and perfect circles and the three-dimensional equivalents of them, you can't see them out in nature, right? They're not expressed directly anywhere. He viewed nature as being kind of messy, right? And so he said, well, look, you know, God is perfect and the underlying structure created by God in nature is perfect, but the expression of it that we can see as imperfect humans is imperfect, right? So it's because we're imperfect that we don't see it out there, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's the allegory of the cave, right? And the idea of, the, of Plato's allegory of the cave, when he's trying to explain this idea that geometry is fundamental to understanding the universe, but we, why we can't ever see it directly in nature was that, you know, the idea in the allegory of the cave is that imagine there are people that are forced to sit in a cave and look at a wall. And behind them is the real three-dimensional world with the sun and the sky and trees and animals and everything. But all these people can do is look at the shadows of them projected in two dimensions on a wall. Mm -hmm. And he said that our imperfect vision of nature is like that, that we see a projection of the true underlying beauty of nature. We just see an imperfect projection of it, a distorted projection out there. And so the reason why this is important is that he said, Geometry is fundamental to understanding the universe. It's the scaffolding that we hang our observations around. It's the scaffolding that we build our understanding of the universe around. But the allegory of the cave, we never get to see those perfect forms. We see distorted shadows of nature's perfection. And if you We're come seeing back, a mirror dimly lit. Right. <laughs> you know, right? And yes. And if you come back to it now, so Plato said that the earth is made of cubes but that we never see those perfect forms. We only see this distorted shadow. And now we discovered that the statistical average behavior of Earth is that they're perfectly cubic, except no particle is a cube. And so it actually is those two pieces of Plato together. And so that's where we thought this is pretty deep. You know, it's not just a stretch. This is actually pretty much exactly what Plato thought, put in the modern scientific language and mathematics so you do you get the sense that you you and your wizard friend have collaborated with plato in a sense (laughs) or so collaborated is a stretch i mean because of course there was no feedback (laughs) like you know we can't get to see what he thinks from us but maybe in a more strict scientist sense so you know i mentioned that like science is different from other things so whatever i am as a human being when i write a science paper we only cite science papers, right? You don't cite philosophy or religious scripts or anything else because not, not because they're not important to you as a person, but because science itself can only build on other ideas that are scientifically vetted. 
the thing here is, so while I don't feel like I collaborated, our main challenge was, is it gratuitous to put Plato in here or is it proper scientific, you know, reasoning? And we actually said, actually, what we've done is just mathematically demonstrate Plato's theoretical framework. And so we felt that we've, so we haven't collaborated, but in a much reduced, but still important to me way, we've properly built on Plato in a scientific way, which is beautiful. I think that's beautiful. I mean, it, it must give you a thrill to, to have that, you know, connection that maybe a future uh, generated model of Plato could tell you good work. Yeah. All right. Y'all know that I love my Quip toothbrush. How many times do I have to say it? It's my favorite toothbrush I have ever owned, ever used, ever stared at while it's sitting there in my little little con- container that you put it on that attaches to your mirror. I just love it. Seriously. My morning routine has changed recently. Uh, you know, we are waking up at different times now, the, the COVID and with everything that's happening, I just, I need a since everything is changing in this world, I need something that kind of is stable and brushing my teeth and keeping up with my oral care is really important. That's one of the little things in my life. that I know go brush my teeth, keep something normal on my every day in the morning, in the night, all of that good stuff. And it's awesome because uh, quit makes it special. It's just better. The vibrate from the vibrations to the, uh, the time vibrations where I know, uh Oh, I've been uh, brushing on this side of the left side. Let me move over to the right side. Let me move to the front. Let me move to the back. All that good stuff. Seriously. Uh, good help starts with good habits and quit makes it easy delivering, uh, all the oral care, all the oral care essentials you need to brush and floss better. The Quip Electric Toothbrush has a timed sonic. Remember, I just mentioned that, it, but I, they they say it a lot better than me. Timed sonic vibrations with thirty second pulses to guide a dentist recommended two minute routine. It's awesome. Paired with Quip's anti cavity toothpaste, which I love in mint or watermelon. I hadn't tried the watermelon yet, so I bet it's awesome. Watermelon is one of my favorite flavors, but I love the mint. Uh, you get all the ingredients teeth actually need and none that they don't. And let me just tell you, why wouldn't you join over 3 million happy customers and practice good oral care easily and affordably with Quip starting at only $25? It's unbelievable. At, right now, if you go to Quip, getquip.com, so go to getquip.com slash badchristian, you'll get your first refill free. That's your first refill free. Let me say it again. Your first refill completely free at getquip.com slash badchristian. That's spelled Q-U-I-P dot com slash bad. I can't even say my own name. Slash bad Christian. Quip, the good habits company. Getquip.com slash bad Christian. And, and y'all are blowing, you're blowing my mind here. But so let me just see if I've got this. So would he say something like, the world, if we had the right vision, would look like Minecraft, the game, or like, yes. like th- yeah, that, that would yeah. be perfect in his because he's saying everything has to line up perfectly. And so, when we see rocks and stones and mountains and trees and everything, we are looking at it in the only way that we can perceive it. But if we could just move into another dimension in a way or something, we could maybe actually see perfection. Yeah, he said the That's pixels right. are too small for you to tell, right? yeah. Well, that that was what was so crazy for me is is the re- the reason I started reading the article because I was like, oh, everything is a pixel and this is a simulation. That's what I that, that's uh-huh. what I, I led to, and and that's probably more of a philosophical thought there too of like what what is real and what isn't. But that really did when I started reading about it, and then I realized, wait a minute, you're you're not saying that everything is actually a cube, and you know when you get down to it, it looks like Minecraft. 
but that that idea there really does float over into the philosophical world of there might be some perfection that we can't see, and then what? Well, it's th- firmly in no- the territory of the illusory nature of physical matter, though. That I mean, right? Do you know what I'm saying? It's a yeah, I, physical matter. Plato and Douglas and me and you are all saying it's not. It's quite more an illusion than it well, may seem. Well, it sounds. It feels like when I open up the the color paints for my kid, the finger paints for my kids. It's all really neat and clean, and then they get it wet and it goes everywhere. And all of a sudden, there's something wild there. But it it was perfect. But now all of a sudden, the way I'm seeing the paint now is it perfect? But it in some ways it is for me. But it like it it is the elements of it are now moved everywhere, but it's still paint and you could, it was, it, you could reduce it back down to maybe some neat form or something, but it, it, it just blows my mind. I don't, <laughs> I, I, I don't know that the, the, that's what I was saying earlier is that it made, it really does make me think, does everything come down to a pixel or a cube? And then if that's the case, you know, y'all didn't, you and Gabor weren't thinking that, that you solved that we are in a simulation, right? <laughs> we weren't. We weren't. But as soon as the paper was published, the Minecraft comparison came out immediately. Right on. And then yeah. I was kind of funny that I didn't think of it. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, uh, so a lot of like science bloggers and everything and trying to translate this idea was like, yeah, Minecraft is real, but only in a statistical average sense. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't thought about that till I saw it in print, but apparently that's dawned on a lot of people that they view it that way. Well, I mean, that may describe some of the success of gaming in general, if not Minecraft. Like, why don't we move on? Like, that's some of the brilliance of the game is that it is obvious how things are built for people that are mechanically minded. They're going to be attracted to that because when you see it, you know, like when people show me when how to draw when I was little, and they say, oh, it's just a bunch of circles. And here's how you draw a dinosaur, a long oval and this and that or whatever. I just couldn't understand that. But right. Minecraft, I, uh, easily, like my mind goes exactly to, I, I see it. It's actually the very literal cubes and squares, you know, right, that, right. I get it. Well, that makes sense. And I think another part of it is, which is connected to that, um, is, so the, the part about Plato and whether it was accident with the cube or whether it was more than that, I think also brings in some rather interesting um uh, you know, cognitive science aspects that I'm not prepared to speak about expertly. But, you know, I asked about this. I've asked some of my uh, cognitive scientist friends, the thing about like a success about Minecraft or even other video games or drawing and animation is that what you realize is that the world is messy and detailed rich. And yet it's so easy to represent the essence of something that makes it recognizable, right? So Minecraft is totally a reasonable world for us and we can get completely pulled into it. And, you know, you can draw the most rudimentary cartoon cat and a, you know, a two-year-old will tell you that's a cat, mm-hmm. even though it includes none of the detail. And so there, our mind is really good at abstracting from the details and finding a general underlying pattern or concept. And the thing is, is that we're doing this mental processing. And so, you know, Plato's pre-science in the allegory of the cave has a connection to cognitive thinking, which we're today, which is how do we see the messy world out there and break it into categories that we can all almost agree on, Mm -hmm. right? They're not perfect agreement, but for most things, you know, and so, um, and I asked my cognitive science friends, is it unreasonable since humans are doing that, that Plato could have been looking at rock, like outcrops of rock with all the cracks and fissures in them. 
and that the mental processing actually sees a cube, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, you can go look at a rock outcrop and once you see it, once you have this cubic idea in your mind, all these lines are at random. But once you have this cubic idea in your mind, you step back and you're like, all I can see is cubes. Yeah. Yeah. The shapes and in the so, clouds. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they're, yeah. they're shapes. It's a, that's yeah. an arm. I see it. Like you can't it's see like the, when you cross your eyes and you can see that illusion detail. That's not what you see. See, once you start trying to reduce the cloud to something, it has a fixed shape all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I want to. Okay, so we only got a few more minutes here, but this, so this is all super fascinating to me. But I, I did want to. There's a couple things I want to ask you since we got you here, and and you love uh, pebbles and rocks and and movement and all that stuff. I've just been hearing about the earthquakes and around the San Andreas Fault, and I wonder if you're in, interested in that kind of stuff as well, like that or Yellowstone, the you know uh, super volcano that's there. Does any of that stuff get you going as well? Yeah, um, and so you know the thing is, um, um, I say that um, you know in science um, we can. I try not to hyper specialize, but in order to be authoritative in an area of research. You have to narrow somewhat, but then my interests are far broader. So mm. I myself have never worked on earthquakes. However, I, I work on problems that are very closely related to earthquakes. So I work on landslides and things like that. And the similarity is that um, there's a deep physics question behind these things, which is like, why would, why would two rocks that are jammed together not slide gradually if you push on them why would they lock up and not do much and then slide a little bit and stop and then suddenly explosively slide right yeah and it's a kind of a similar question if you think about a landslide which is that you think of soil as a solid until it's not right so it's sitting there on the hill moving slowly oozing a little bit but to our eyes not moving at all and then suddenly it rains or an earthquake shakes it a little bit and it turns into a liquid and it goes. So those sorts of failure transitions from material going from seemingly not moving to suddenly sliding or flowing rapidly is a very deep area of, um, of research for me and my group. And um, at a granular level, the earthquake problem that you're talking about and the landslide, some of the landslide problems that I work on are fundamentally the same thing. And when I say at a granular level, I literally mean grains. So even if you consider the San Andreas Fault, we think of it as two pieces of rock sliding. But imagine you can zoom in on that interface and blow it up. What you actually see is never two chunks of solid rock in contact with each other because the rock breaks apart into fragments, actually. (laughs) Then what you have between these two chunks of solid rock is a bunch of granular material from pebble sized all the way down to like nanoparticle sized rock that's been being ground up and ground up. And so um, it turns out that you're basically taking a granular material and squeezing it and then moving the plates on either side and asking, how does it respond to that? And that's a very similar problem to how the grains of soil in a landslide right? Have to move past each other and why sometimes they're able to do it slowly and smoothly. And sometimes they do it catastrophically and quickly. Mm-hmm. So I'm deeply interested in that stuff. Do you but, have any predictions like, uh, when you or people in the field, like, is it, 
are people in California in real danger? Like the, the news, the headlines will say, yeah, uh-oh, there's going to be more and there's going to be a month of aftershocks or more earthquakes and stuff like that. When you hear about that stuff, I'm certain you don't want anybody to die, but are you also like, whoa, it'd be kind of wild if I could see something like that happen. Well, so um, I'll give you an example. So I was on sabbatical two years ago, which um, is this great thing that we get to do as professors, right? Where we go ditch teaching for a semester and live somewhere else. And um, our family went to Santa Barbara, right? And my research is at the interface of geoscience and physics. And so sometimes I work like a geologist and sometimes I work like a physicist. And when we went to Santa Barbara, I decided I was going to go just be a physicist. I went to this theoretical physics institute there and I was just going to like learn all that. I wanted to learn a bunch more physics, take time, stretch out and do that and not work on any geoscience problems. And um, this was in uh, like winter of 2018. And then um, this was in Santa Barbara. And then this uh, Montecito mudslides happened where there was a fire in October 2017 in January 2018. It rained like crazy. And there were mudslides that came down the canyons, left the canyons and killed 25 people and buried half of a town. Mm. So Montecito is right next to Santa Barbara. And it was, so I live in Philadelphia. We get flooding sometimes, but this was my first direct experience of being like right at a major natural disaster. Like I had been in the neighborhood and then a few weeks later I went up into it and it was gone, you know, like wow. unrecognizable. Mm. And obviously, it was horrendous. At the same time, not only was I interested in trying to understand why, and as strange as it is, a scientific curiosity, which is like, why now? There's been fires here before. There's been rain here before. Why did this fire followed by this rain do this? And the other part was the very visceral experience that I decided I was going to come on sabbatical to indulge myself in pure curiosity. But now this natural disaster happened right there in an area where, in an area of science that I have a lot of expertise in. And I had a feeling that I'm actually scientifically curious to learn something about this. And I feel kind of an obligation given that this happened. You know, I'm a scientist. So this is only coincidence, right? There, I don't believe any fate or intervention made this mudslide happen while I was there, right? By the way, it's Southern California, so there's a good chance of a mudslide happening somewhere, right? But um, that was an example where I said, I've got to work on this problem. And I've become fascinated with that problem of why those mudslides then in that place. And that's led me on a journey two and a half years later of that's an example kind of back to what Matt was talking about at the beginning, where this was an example where I started working backwards from the application. Normally, I, I, have, I like to have my own question like we were talking about. In this case, people wanted to know why this slide killed these people and buried in that place. And we started from that and said, what are all the things we don't know about the fundamental science that says why we can't answer those questions that people have. Right. Um, so yeah, when I hear about these things, I unfortunately see a lot of opportunities, but I, I have a cheap out. Cause when you work on these things, people want to know about prediction. They're like, is the big one going to happen right in the next 10 years? Or yeah. is this landslide going to happen in this place? And my cheap out is I say, I work on limits of predictability. There you go. But <laughs> what I mean by that is that 
there are fundamental limits to predictability in all physical systems. And some of them are hard and some of, or some of them are pretty easy to understand. Some of them, the limits of predictability are quite severe, like the classic example of the weather. We now know about the mathematics underlying those equations. There's a lot of math that tells you exactly why weather is unpredictable beyond a certain horizon. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I actually am interested in that. I work a lot on the limits of predictability in some of these systems. Well, then what are the limits of predictability on something like climate change then? And what at, at, on that particular issue, what is interesting to you to pay attention to? Yeah, so the limits of predictability on things like climate change are... Um, always thresholds. So what I mean by that is like, so when I want to talk about a threshold to people in my class, I say, if I put a cup on the table, so we can describe all the physics, we can come up with one thing in the physics of I push on this cup and how fast does it slide? But once it falls off a cliff, right now we got gravity going down and now it can hit the ground and then maybe it breaks and maybe it doesn't. And so if I've got a model of pushing this cup, but my model doesn't know anything that there's a cliff, then my model can be perfectly good at describing that cup sliding. But if it falls off a cliff, my model fails. So we're aware of a bunch of, sometimes people say tipping points instead of thresholds, right? Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is that ultimately climate is about a coupled fluid system. You got atmosphere, which is a, you know, you got the air, which is a gas, it's a fluid and it's turbulent and crazy. Like if you fly in a plane and all of a sudden you get rocked back and forth, right? And you have the ocean, which is a liquid, and it's turbulent. And so the thing is, is then the the air currents drive the ocean while the ocean determines the atmospheric air currents. So you got this coupled system. And the thing is, is that in all of those systems, there are fundamental tipping points. So an example is like, fundamentally, the thing about climate that it's connected to is there's this classic problem of you take a pot and you start heating it from below. And you just, when does it start convecting vigorously? And when does it go from convecting gently in the whole pot to breaking into a totally chaotic mess? So that's a classic problem in unpredictability from just like convection of a boiling pot. And now you consider that in the ocean, we've got heat and salt, and you've got fresh water coming in from melting glaciers, which is colder, which makes it more dense, but it's also fresh, which makes it less dense than the ocean. And the heat and the salt mix differently. And then you've got these circulation patterns. But if the temperature changes too much, they might just shut off. And so I think that right now, the fundamental limits on predictability are related to these tipping points of things like the thermohaline circulation, which is like the path that, you know, heat and salt, there's like a pathway, a general average pathway of it moving through the world's oceans. But that whole pathway of flowing could change fundamentally. Mm -hmm. And so the limits on predictability right now are that we can capture what we see today pretty well in our models. And I'm using our in a royal sense. I don't work on climate models, but I mean from scientists. Um, We can capture what we see today in the climate system pretty well, including like El Nino oscillations and other global phenomenon. The models produce those things. But the question is, if there's something that's missing, in the, if there's a tipping point in the future, and we'll only see it in the future, and an element is missing in our model, our models are only as good as what they include. Mm-hmm. So if there's some factor that we are missing, then we're making a forecast 50 years into the future, and we might miss it. 
there might be some tipping point, but we'll never see it in our model because we've missed a factor that could push us over that tipping point. It's an unknown unknown. Yeah. It's the unknown unknowns right now. There's things that we could know better and do better, but it's the unknown unknowns. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, wow. Terrific. That's a, a terrifically wonderful, uh, conversation to have. That, that we've just done i've quite enjoyed it very, very much it's kind of it was a really nice you know peruse through some scientific thinking and some mental mindset there i really really now, i have one last it. question it was kind of two Wait. but i'm gonna put them together one last question so you you were speaking earlier about how sometimes you talk about like, like take your time <laughs> I, was, I was gonna say you speak do you can you hear me yeah now i can yeah okay sorry um you were speaking about Mars earlier, and I was just thinking about you in your talk. You were talking about a lot of the rock formations were from just being blasted by asteroids, and I was thinking about asteroids and how they form in, and uh, potentially erode. It's probably in space; it would just be collisions. But similarly to stones here, right? It's, it's just collisions. But uh, I, so I thought that was just fascinating: the asteroids hitting the planet and bringing different rock formations here, even if you know, not even talking about what. The, the rocks are in essence, but just the formations of them. And then when you look at a, a planet like Mars, are you thinking it can tell us about earth? Is that, is that part of your goal when you study anything from there or look at pebbles that you found on Mars? So yes, in the most general sense, in other words, it's not so that I can look at something on Mars and directly understand a particular thing about earth better it's rather as a test of generality, meaning that if we really understand the physics and mathematics behind some phenomenon, then it should work on Mars. It should work on some other planet. If I change gravity, I mean, of course, the forces change, but that if I can account for that change in gravity and if I can account for that change in the atmospheric density and I can make a prediction, my prediction should be right. So I think of I'm interested in Mars for its own sake, but I'm also, when we do that, it's to test how truly general our predictions are. That if what we learn, if we're really correct, it should hold up on other planets. And so I view these other planets as opportunities for us to do tests of how general our explanations about how nature works are. Awesome. Perfect. Doug, where can people find you at? There anything you want to promote? Anything coming out? Um, I... Uh, coming out not necessarily we got a bunch of esoteric scientific papers coming out um but um i got a twitter handle doug's junk drawer um and um i just where i basically promote and share mostly geared toward other scientists but kind of in layperson speak it's about science and the science i'm interested in but also the culture behind science yeah um and um we got a website but that's not that good you know (laughs) (laughs) But I would, I would say that, um, look up, look up stuff on the Plato's cube papers. So there's a few, um, really good kind of pop culture and pop science things written about it already. And there's going to be in, in, in the journal science and also in popular mechanics. And there's going to be a few other things coming down on the pike that apparently the journalists that have been interviewing me say, I'm not allowed to tell you what they are, but just look up the Plato's cube thing. Cause there's some, some other people, uh, non-scientists have done a good job sort of explaining that stuff for me in a way that um, is better than I could do it. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you. You're a great communicator of science yeah. and, and all those things. What's your favorite uh, pebble for the yard, landscape, and driveway, et cetera? You know, I like a classic river pebble. I just mm-hmm. love the round smoothness, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's my favorite. Great. 
Thank you. Right, thank Doug. you guys. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, we appreciate your time, man. Yeah, you got it. All right, man. I I I want to. I'm going to go back uh, and I'm going to tell everybody. I dare you to understand all this. <laughs> and I dare. I dare you, weak-minded fools out there that listen to the Bad Christian Podcast. I want to talk about is uh, is God? What did God uh, get out of here? Don't you understand? <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> that was. I'm telling you, I couldn't have been more happy listening to, to him. I just. Why? I just thought it. Was, I think it's just that. Okay, first of all, he's, he's a brilliant guy, and and you and you said he's a great communicator. I mean, he's obviously probably a, a good professor. I mean, a, probably a great professor. I mean, he's. It, it, he's found his calling. He he communicates really well. The Pebbles. Anybody out there listening? Go li- go watch the Pebbles. I think uh, I have it pulled up here, but um, I'll give the right name of it. But I just thought it was just so neat because he's just talking about all of the stuff that I don't ever care about or think about, and I just am so happy that first of all, like the beginning of the podcast, that somebody would spend so much time on something they like that I have no interest in. Wow, that that's that's kind of cool. Why it makes me go? Why didn't I have interest in it? Well, you Maybe have interest I, in I, surfing what did TikTok. I miss? Don't sell yourself short. I can see that's what I'm saying. I, I, yeah, I'm inter- I'm interested in a TikTok, but I'm just saying, even the TikToks that I end up watching the most are people that are just really full on making stuff or or no. I, stuff I make, out. I'm not really making a joke there. I'm saying that you have oh. deep fascinations. On levels of things, they're just different things. But don't you think that your real thoughts that are very deep about people on TikTok and what you know there are way beyond what you're able to communicate to other people? Do you appreciate it on a level of depth that others do not? Oh, yes, for sure. So it's just lacking the ability that other people are either interested in what you're interested in or the ability to communicate it are the two things. But many people, I think, have deep fascinations that they really 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 have that they are simply unable to share with people it drives me crazy the thought of that it's like a panic feeling for me because there's many things i have deep care about that i everybody thinks is stupid well well i think part, that's part of it for me <laughs> yeah i think you're right but part of it for me and i think you and i have this in common and it's there's we have we had FOMO before anybody had FOMO <laughs> and because we realized, wait a minute, if I go to bed early, what if, what if the guys hang out and do something fun or what, it, you know, oh my gosh, like what Doug, it, it reignited that a little bit. Like, wait a minute, what am I missing here? That, that, I mean, I like, I, I like a rock as good as anybody, <laughs> you know you know what I mean? But I, but I don't go that deep or, or into it. And I'm like, man, maybe I'm missing something here. That's really interesting. And then when, when we're starting to talk about climate change, I think of the sky, not the ground. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I know that it feels like just the effects on the ground, but there, there's something deeper there. And and when we're talking about Plato and the cube, and he's he's we're, we're learning something that isn't exactly clear. It's not that everything is actually a cube at the same time, or that anything is actually a cube at one point. Every it, like that whole idea, I'm like, whoa, this is really crazy. The world is just so much more. And you said at the beginning, we feel like we're faced with the biggest lack of meaning. And when I feel talk to people like there's Doug, plenty. I, there's just so much. Yeah, there's plenty. You know, and you know why it's so meaningful? Because it's it's about the thing and the and the doing it and yeah. the work of it and right. the and the stuff. It's not it's not that now that I have the pebble understanding, I can know that I am worthwhile. No. It does very little for your status if that's right. your and interest. You yeah, you don't need your, that. <laughs> that's what he was. That, that, that's why it was so interesting about him. We says you know most people don't care. There's no money in this all stuff. I'm still going to do it. And 
because it is actually fascinating. There is a lot of meaning in it, and so he's doing it for the meaning. Yeah, people and go, well, who bloody cares? I go, that's that's who that's if that's right. who you are. Then okay, I mean, then that's you're gonna have right. a harder time if nothing is matters. Uh, if you know, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, well, there's a when you're talking about TikTok and me finding what what are you saying about me and TikTok? I'm that saying I, that when you are find a TikTok <laughs> video that you share, yeah. you share it to on a text thread or as a joke. And that is the simplest, lightest level in which you can communicate something you have deep, yes. tremendous thoughts about that 59-second video. And you yeah. only get to say, wasn't that funny? But I know you, and I know you have profound and deep, detailed thoughts about that person and why they did it and what was behind that and why did right. they do it. You have very detailed thoughts about things. Yeah. But anybody else just goes, oh, that was funny. Right? Yeah. yeah. So that whole yeah, private I, world right. is your yeah. analysis of the whole TikTok that has you so fascinated. And you can share with, with Devin. He goes, oh, that was funny when he fell down. But there's a much more depth there that you are getting meaning out of because you are putting in the, the yeah. effort of analysis, even yeah, if it's a TikTok that, video. Right. And I'm you're telling like you, that, yeah. I don't find it crazy when people talk about people like, you know how, you know, there'll be the kind of people that are into phone book memorization or whatever. And, and yeah. or the people that memorize dates and stuff that people think is stupid, I don't think it's stupid. Right. You know, like it's not, it, it is meaningful. It is, you yes. can't say it's not meaningful. You can only say you don't have the acquired taste. Right. Now, we all share the acquired taste about coffee. Oh, we talk about the, what elevation it was made at. And, right. you know, like you, because everybody likes coffee, right. you know, but if you're into sediment, or phone numbers, or repeating decimals, or digits of pi, or whatever, or, you know, Making memorizing noises. the phone yeah. book. I mean, people think you're weird. Yeah. But you well, have, you're, you, yeah. you're not, you have something of meaning. So, it's not not meaningful, because other people say it's not, is what I'm saying. Yeah. I've sent y'all, that's what, I guess you're right, now that you say that about TikTok, it's funny, when I watch TikTok, the ones that get me, it, there's always like a few at a time where I'm like, I can't stop watching it. And it's, and it's because I don't, I can't believe I'm getting to see it. There's something yeah. about TikTok there that conveys something to me about the, the human that yes. nothing, nothing is like that. Like a, a, a great looking picture on Instagram. I get it. It's a great looking picture, but the, the TikTok for me, like, so right now there's three people that are just, I'm fascinated by. I, I probably sent them all to you, Matt. One is this guy that does impressions and it's just barely off, but he mm -hmm. keeps on doing it. It's just, it's not, it's so yeah. close. You know, he's doing Michael Caine or, uh, you know, uh, somebody from a movie. What, what's the, uh, Tom Hiddleston or somebody like, like, you know, he's doing uh, the other one. It was like Shia LaBeouf. Who the fuck he's is so Tom close. Hiddleston? I know that. Oh, <laughs> he, you know, uh, Tom Hiddleston's, uh, Loki. Okay. I like, him. Uh, I think that's his name. Uh, whoever Loki is, whatever Tom, whatever his last name is, but, uh, and it's just barely off, and I just love that he keeps doing it, and it's off. And I'm just like, he, he's working hard, and yeah. he's so close, but it's not really there, and he's still putting in front of people. But he, he shouldn't, but maybe he should. Yeah. And so this, this whole thing where say, I'm like, yeah, that's yeah. a guy's pretty good impressions. Next. Right, right. Nothing. They and get nothing then, uh, there's one there's one kid who has a little bit of a disability, and he can't really talk. He can only make, basically make noises, but he uh, does magic tricks. And the tricks are pretty good. But he, but he doesn't talk, and his facial expressions are so awesome. And like, cause sometimes he'll, he'll he'll make a noise and he just stares at the camera like, Whoa. yeah, 
Yeah, I like a magician one. does. Look yeah. at the. Can you believe that it disappeared? Yeah, it's like, great. But he's not saying, "Can you believe it disappeared?" But it's in his face, mm-hmm. and I'm just like, "Yes, oh man!" And and this is just he learned this. Yeah, I and love he, that it's just a too. kid, yeah. and I was like, "Oh wow, this is so amazing, it's so wonderful." And then there's one where it's just it's kind of a bigger guy, it looks just like Joel Green actually, and he sings not that great, but he constantly does. You can do duets, so if somebody else plays a song, you can sing with them on TikTok. He just constantly does it, but it's just off. And he, he sings real high, and I just can't believe he keeps doing it. And it's all about him. Like him, it, it's like he's super confident that he's awesome, and he's helping this. It, like his, that whole dynamic, what I'm reading into him, isn't like a great guy, but then he would be devastated if probably if he heard me say something like that maybe mm-hmm. or be heard or whatever. I understand why, but it's fascinating that he would constantly – these other so somebody will do a song, and they're phenomenal. They're unbelievable. They're uh, they can play any instrument or sing any way possible, and then he sings and it's not. And I just like I can't believe it. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting here watching. I'm viewing it. And it's just shocking to me. And so you're right. Now that you said that, I'm like I, I really there is some kind of meaning thing that I just. But you generate oh all of that meaning yourself by just simply being fascinated with something. Yeah, maybe I'm even making up it's, the stories for myself, but it's still. I feel like I see this in these people, and I'm like, how the, the fact that they keep going and they keep doing it, and they're putting up videos, put a billion times more videos than me. I have a, big, a thousand times bigger platform than any of these folks, and they're just out there doing it and grinding, and and it's not even that great. And they <laughs> and it, it it is great to them. You know what I mean? Like it is really good. Yeah. Like they don't. I, I'm just fascinated by it, but yeah, I don't know. It's how just deep fascination that. is my only point with that. That's hard to share. Why? Right. Even though you do a pretty good job of that. And it's just, you know, if you think of the opposite of that, it's a person who's incurious. And when I right. f- bump up against somebody that I find to be incurious, I get real nervous real fast. I'll put it that way. Yeah. You know, like that. the opposite right. quality is a person who is consumed with their self narrative and self talk and could be could not be more less interested in how something works or yeah. what makes a person tick or anything's intrinsic value so much you know yeah if you're not curious about anything it it just mean you know like uh, this is just a right. really bad sign i mean i think it's a, a but and, and know, that's why something like to cultivate i'm not claiming there's bad people because they right. don't like nerdy stuff that's not my right. point, but you, there's a cultivation of a curiosity of something that matters that is not about you. Right. That seems to be a part of a person's mental health and meaning. And you don't get to say that it doesn't matter and that person's stupid because they care about something. Yeah. Like, uh, I, I wanted know. to say something about that too that it came up with Doug while we were talking because I asked him that question because I, I wanted, and he answered great. Like, for him, it is good if the San Andreas fall happens yeah, yeah. and breaks, right? Like it is, and that isn't bad. He's not an evil person. I'm not an evil person for like, okay, one of the guys I used to follow was this guy who was, a, I guess, is an alcoholic. And he would he would hold his Jack Daniels bottle and the Jack Daniels bottle would talk to the beer. And he's slurring his words. He's going, hello, Jack Daniels. How are you doing? Hello, Bud Light. I'm just fascinated by it, right? I don't, I don't want the guy to die. I can't, I, but somebody, you shouldn't watch that. That guy's sad. He's sick. Okay, but I'm just treating him like I'm treating you. That if you, if you did something, I would watch it too. I, that, that's I'm I'm not trying to encourage the guy to to do. That. I'm watching what he's putting out. Mm-hmm. He's whatever he's doing. I'm not holding. I'm not going to hold back because he's a certain way or doing. I, I'm not going to. I'm not destroying him. 
I'm watching and learning and seeing what can happen because maybe somebody will be like that in my life and I will see something more or maybe I'll learn something about me or well, maybe people it's just funny. There. Maybe it's just funny and I'm laughing at him sometimes. Yeah, or people think you're getting a sicker pleasure out of it than you may be, but I find that to be them projecting what if right. they were that's watching what, that would only be to think how much better they were than him. And I don't think right. that's true about you. But that's what that's what a narrow an thinking serious person would see. Right. If you can only look at an alcoholic or a person with a disability as sad or oh no, right. then that's all big, they can ever be. Big trouble. There. But what if I like? What if I go, man? That was pretty fucking funny, right? What, oh my gosh, that guy's that wild. He drank that much. He can drink that much and still be <laughs> awake. I, I'm just saying, not not. I'm not celebrating it necessarily, uh, but I'm. But it's not that I'm the evil person. That oh man, I like watching the fucking sick shit. I do. I do like that. I yeah, like watching do. fucking yeah, sick do. shit. You love right? the fucking sick shit. You at least right. can admit that. But right? but I think All part of it. that, yeah, and part of that too though is because. Good Lord, you don't ever hardly get to see it because everybody protects you and you got to be safe and you can't yeah. do this and that and this and that. And I's like, get out of here. When the hell is it? What the hell's that gotten us? We're all a bunch of liars that can't even tell the truth online anymore. Good God, I'd rather people tell me some sick fucking shit than the We used the, to could online tell the well, truth. Hey, let me ask you this question. What's worse, the sick fucking shit or the actual shit that we have now on the internet? On Facebook, I would way rather everybody tell me their fucking nasty shit or their weird stuff or the goofy stuff or put themselves out there than what we have now because we have nothing. You don't know who anybody is, and it is nothing. People are saying stuff, and it is lies and lies and filth and disgust, and nobody's telling anybody the truth or anything. I'd way rather somebody on TikTok look goofy and try and sing a duet with a song. At least I, I can understand him. Maybe I don't even like it. Maybe I'm laughing at whatever. Well, I, that's I just resp- authenticity. I can get it. Like, you know, right. I think we were talking almost about that topic on the very top of this podcast, and it's just like with the politicians or whatever. Right. I mean, you know, we. It, I guess if we have a lane, it's it's, a, it's authenticity movement. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, it just doesn't matter. It's just it, it seems like that the ground since 2015 to now, like when we started this podcast, is kind of about authenticity. And the world has just moved so much farther away from it. It's pretty exhausting. I know. You're right. <laughs> you know? Like, I thought with the podcast and the internet and the opening it up, it's like, oh, here comes the authenticity movement. And then, no. Nope. It's, it's That's farther, gone. farther away. Yep. Yeah. Sad. You know what's not sad is join the BC club. If you haven't, you are you are worse than you're you're le- less than you're less than sediment. Yeah, you're, worse you, than you, sediment. you're not even you you're not even a cube. You're some of angular jagged rock all out there by yourself. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, just just nothing. You might get out, get off our planet if you ain't gonna join the BC club. Yeah, you just sat media, and listen to this whole please. damn podcast, and you can't help us with something like money. <laughs> Well, it's what the authentic fuck is wrong group, with you, you and I'm proud of, of our you group. You listen to this authentic. whole damn podcast, and you are sitting here right now with my voice in your ears, and you are not going to go to badchristian.com and sign up for the BC Club. You are you are less than a cube of sediment to me, and that is the that's the truth. I don't, I don't want your ass in the BC Club. No, I'm I'm just joking. Please do. I'm moving. I got a lot of expenses. Life's really. It's the you know, dear uh, Father God. You know, we just. <laughs> well, yeah, we get out of here. I just thought of something that we just really missed opportunity, and I don't know what the joke would have been, but we should have explained to Doug that our band Emory and its business name 
It's Emory the Masters of Rock, you know. That's right. We could have related on that. I don't know what the joke is, but it is true that our business name is officially, as it was titled in 2002 when we set up yeah. the LLC. You're right. The name Emory was taken, I, I, and we yeah. have forever been Emory the Masters of Rock since. We've been the Masters so. of Rock, and, and we used to tell people when we were like big-time Christian band, we would say, where'd you get your name from? Well, Emory is a stone used to polish diamonds, and that's what we hope. We know with our sinful lives that maybe we aren't ever going to be beautiful and clean and clear, but maybe our lives can speak into others and polish off that old dusty piece of coal that's being compressed and turn it into a diamond. And do you know my favorite Emory song? Jesus Christ. What? Rock, Pebble, Stone. Oh, God. I knew sediment was in my blood. (laughs) (laughs) I got to get my insurance back because it probably actually is. You got sediment in the blood. Oh, shit. Doctor told me I got sediment in my blood. You pushed my Things when it was only you and me, but now 